When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, remember the days of the hashtag free Melania? Remember how we said she was a hostage in the White House? Well, now there's a book that says we were all wrong about that. Katha Pollitt will explain. But first, maybe you heard the news. Tuesday night, Biden debated Trump for the first time. For our post-mortem, we turn, of course, to John Nichols. He's national affairs correspondent for the magazine. John, welcome back. Trump entered the debate on Tuesday night seven or eight points behind. He'd lost ground, especially among suburban women. This was really his biggest chance to change the dynamic of the race, maybe his last big chance to win over undecideds. What happened on Tuesday night? Well, I, I think he definitely changed the dynamic of the race. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, would, I would go so far as to say that when you are an incumbent president of the United States uh, and you present yourself as a disruptive bully in, in a debate in a way that, that no one has, has ever seen, even in 2016 when he was running at a level that, that went to extremes, um, you do change the dynamic of, of the, the race because uh, you do a couple of things. Number one, and this is what Donald Trump did on Tuesday night, he reinforced all of his stereotypes. And at a time when he really needed to expand his base, build out beyond, you know, kind of the narrow sector of the electorate that is stuck with him, um, he did the opposite. He uh, was incredibly combative, incredibly disruptive, and even in the midst of that chaos that was created, and we could talk about that because I think it's important, um, he still hit all the touchstones that might raise concerns about him. He was asked to you know, clearly dis- denounce uh, white supremacy, and you know, he, he really didn't effectively or aggressively do it at a point when it would have been so very easy. He was asked to accept the results of the election to say that he would you know, be supportive of the peaceful transfer of power and uh, instead started ranting about, you know, all the things he always rants about, fake ballots or whatever. And he was needlessly cruel. He went to uh, such lengths to bring Hunter Biden's name into the debate and uh, to sort of savagely push back uh, at a point when Joe Biden, the Democratic nominee for president, was talking about his other son, Bo, who had served in the military and who has since passed on, Trump, you know, immediately leapt to Hunter Biden and did so in such a vicious way. He revealed his cruelty, as I said. But number two, he made Hunter Biden a sympathetic figure. He, I think he made a lot of people, he caused Joe Biden to say, yeah, my son's been through some, some tough things and I'm proud of him for, you know, working through it. And I can't imagine that any reasonable person 
would come away believing that what Trump did, A, was, was necessary, or B, was to the good. So here's what I am puzzled by. Trump obviously had a plan. This was his plan the whole time. It isn't like oh, yeah. he got rattled and flew off the handle. He came, From the first minute of the, the, the debate, he was disruptive. He was disgusting. He was not trying to win over the undecideds, mm -hmm. and he certainly wasn't trying to win over suburban women. He looked, seemed like he was not trying to win. So what was his plan? Well, there are people who believe he doesn't want to win. Frank, I don't buy it. I think Donald Trump's got a huge ego, and, and losing will, will in fact, um, do severe harm to, to that ego. But uh, there are people who, who think he's got some sort of recognition that the next four years are going to be incredibly hard, and he's not up to it, and so somehow he, he does self-defeating things. So you can put that theory in a box and do with it what you like. Uh, my sense is that Donald Trump lives in the Donald Trump bubble, and Within his bubble, he believes that he can somehow still win this election on a narrow lane that takes him through the states that, that he is going to win, interior west, southern states, and then picks up battleground states very, very narrowly, just by a handful of votes, but does enough of them so that he gets an electoral college win, perhaps losing by five, even seven million votes in the popular balloting but still you know, taking this narrow win, in a sense, an extension of what he did in 2016. But then with an overlay of uh, understanding that there will be very close results and, a, and frankly, a strategy to create chaos, to do voter suppression before the election and to contest the election afterwards. And I know there are people who may say, well, yeah, but how can you really do that? I wrote a book about the 2000 election, particularly the Bush v. Gore fight in Florida. And there is simply no question that a chaos theory benefited George W. Bush and helped him to ultimately prevail, or at least to the, to the, prevail to the extent that he was able to become the president of the United States. And so I do think that that's where Trump's head is at. That comes, again, out of the, the Trump bubble. And if I can just add one more thing about the Trump bubble. Sure. When he had opportunities to raise an issue, to go into an issue, instead of going to what would have been much stronger for him uh, to make arguments that sort of shored up his appeal, he went to sort of the worst uh, kind of internet, you know, Twitter troll conspiracy theories, things that, that, that did in fact make him look nutty and extreme and dangerous and cruel. And so... Uh, it, it seems to me that he's kind of been marinated in his, his racism, his xenophobia, his cruelty for so long that he believes his own lies. That is, from an electoral politics standpoint, the most dangerous thing of all. If you believe your own lies, then you can't do what politicians often do, which is talk their way out of a corner, because you actually want to be in the corner. Not all Republicans live in the Trump bubble. They have to live <laughs> with it. But, but you know, there's a lot of Republican candidates in close races, especially for the Senate. There are some House races that are uh, that are close. And there's lots of Republicans on the ballot all over the place who 
play by the rules, debate the issues. I wonder how having the head of their party be so unhinged and abusive look to them. Somebody like Susan Collins. What do you think Susan Collins is feeling this morning? I think it was a nightmare for her. And I think it's a, a, a bigger nightmare, actually, for people like Cory Gardner, who is still in a you know relatively competitive race for Tom Tillis, uh, Cory Gardner being in Colorado, Tom Tillis in North Carolina. And, and I think it actually has relevance for the uh, Montana race, where if you'll note that uh, some prominent Montana Republicans have started coming out for Biden. And here's where, where things get, get rough. If Donald Trump makes himself so offensive that people who might not usually vote for Joe Biden feel that they have some sort of duty not to Joe Biden, not to but to democracy itself to cast that vote for Biden because a message is delivered that a big Biden win actually is the best way to push back against all of Trump's craziness, including the threats to not respect the peaceful transfer of power. That, that's a problem in itself. That's the actual people kind of switching over. But then there's another problem, too. If it just starts to look really bad and the poll numbers get worse and the circumstance gets uglier, uh, a chunk of people will just stay home. And remember, one of Trump's strengths in 2016 was that he made a portion of the electorate believe that he was going to drain the swamp, that he was different than other politicians, that he really was going to make a change. And, and a lot of people got very excited about that. He didn't make the change. He did a horrible job managing the pandemic. Uh, the economy is a shambles at this point. There are all sorts of other challenges. And, and now he's looking pretty crazy. And so if, that, if a sector of people just simply stay home, that obviously harms his totals, but it really harms the people who have sort of tied themselves to Trump in, in electoral contests around the country. And John, where this is going to become most evident, and it hasn't happened yet, at least not in many places, but where, where, what we're going to look for is where you start to see Republicans in tight races begin to distance themselves from Donald Trump. And I would say last night's performance is a pivot point where that now becomes not certain, but much more likely. It's sort of a uh, what philosophers call a category error to treat this as a regular debate and say, yeah, you, you know, who, who won and who lost. But I do wonder what what you thought about how Joe Biden held up under the uh, onslaught of insults and interruptions. It was a horrible play spot to be in. And some of our friends think he mm -hmm. should have been much more aggressive and much tougher. What did you think? Uh, I thought uh, Biden's performance was a complex performance that had strengths and weaknesses and strategy within it, but uh, strategies that he didn't always stick to. And if we then sort of unpack that for a moment, I, I think it's most important to start by saying that in any debate, you, you rank everybody on the stage of winners and losers. The biggest loser was Chris Wallace. He went into that debate with a, a great reputation as a, as a strong, solid journalist who, you know, really was able to call out people he interviewed and, and hold them to account. Uh, he lost control of the debate at the start. He never got it back. 
and didn't even state the rules of the debate in, in a clear way to push back against what Trump was doing until an hour and 13 minutes into the debate when he said, you know, there's a two minute rule here. You're not supposed to interrupt. And then Trump immediately inter interrupted afterward. So Wallace, Wallace comes out as the person who gets a, a huge amount of blame simply for not, not having a plan, not managing the debate. Then when we look to the candidates, right, I, I think that between Trump and Biden, Biden came out ahead that at the end of the day, and there's some, some instant polls that would suggest this as well, that at the end of the day, uh, Biden, for people who are watching the debate with a relatively open mind, Biden came off as more dignified, more credible, and that's obviously what Biden wanted. It's clear that at, at critical points, he stood down a little bit. He, he was hoping that Wallace would do more. Wallace didn't really. But he found his marks. And there were a couple points where he was able to deliver some pretty strong answers. But I think he was slow to realize that this debate was just going to be straight chaos and that ultimately very little of what is said was going to be heard. And in that circumstance, I, I think that he, he then did a couple of mistakes. He sometimes would kind of be drawn into Trump's madness and the, and the, the extreme things and try to respond. Sometimes he was effective, sometimes not, but I don't think he did himself a, a great deal of harm there. And uh, the one place where I thought he got a little too defensive was when Trump was you know, trying to divide the Democratic coalition. And you know, it's when Trump starts talking about socialism and uh, Biden comes back and says, well, I beat the socialists. You know, I beat Bernie Sanders. That's, that's not the right message at all, especially when Bernie Sanders is, is working his tail off to get you elected. Yeah. Um, it was it just unnecessary and doesn't help him any at all. And then also when the Green New Deal came up, you know, he says, well, I, I'm not for the Green New Deal. It's not my, that's not my Green New Deal. I've got the Biden plan and stuff like this. Well, the truth is that one of the better things that Biden's done is to adopt many elements of, not the whole of it, but many elements of the Green New Deal. And the right answer is not to you know, distance yourself from the Green New Deal, is to say, look, the Green New Deal's got a lot of good ideas. It's a real aspiration, and I've embraced good ideas that I can work with. I've seen some places where I want to be, you know, want to take a slightly different stand and, you know, look at ways to get there, other routes, et cetera. And then all he has to say is, and that's what a president does. You know, you, you yeah. take good ideas and you work with them. And instead, he sort of distanced himself a little. And I, I didn't think that was all that savvy. But bottom line, if you step away from the whole thing and you say, OK, who of us in, in, a, in the chaos that existed where the moderator wasn't moderating and where the where you had somebody who was clearly trying to disrupt everything that was going on and saying unbelievably uh, outrageous things that that racist xenophobic cruel the whole bit all being played out i think most any political figure even the most skilled political figure would at at times default into defensive uh, responses, kind of stumble at some points. And, and I don't think, frankly, there's going to be a lot of people that blame Biden all that much for, for how he responded. So what, what is to be done about the next debate? Is there a way Good question. to control Trump's aggressive insults and incessant interruptions? There's been a suggestion that the moderator should be able to turn off the mics of each candidate for the periods in which the other one is supposed to be speaking. Uh, I'm, you know, Trump, I'm sure, won't accept uh, an agreement 
that his mic can be turned off if he breaks the rules. So should the Democrats even go forward with a second debate? If, if indeed the, the polling after a couple of days shows that Biden came out way ahead from this debate, that he benefited from it, it may not be the Democrats who are looking to not do any more debates. It, it could well be the Republicans. So understand that there's, there's a lot more to this than just uh, us presuming that, that it'll be the Democrats walking in saying they, they want a different format or a different style. Uh, but the Commission on Presidential Debates, which, by the way, I think is a horrible entity and I have criticized from its founding and I have, have no taste for it, might be able to redeem itself a little bit in my eyes if they stepped up and acknowledged that this was a failure, that this day, debate did not work. And if they put forward a set of standards that they said, you know, we're not going to call these candidates back in to negotiate how they're going to do it. This is how it's going to be. The debates going forward are going to have two-minute answers, which cannot be interrupted. If someone interrupts, we will either turn their mic off or do whatever. Or maybe they would say something else that, that uh, doesn't work. This, we have a candidate who is openly disruptive, so we're going to go to a Zoom debate where you know, you're know you going to come in from different rooms on on a screen, and that will be moderated and controlled. But at some fundamental level, they just have to lay down some standards. And if Trump doesn't accept it, well, then the debates are done. Then they're finished. It's, it's as simple as that. And if he does, and, and if we go forward, then, then that's fine too. But I, I don't think you could find many Americans who would say at this point, oh gosh, I've got to see more debates. I got to see more <laughs> of what I saw Tuesday night. What I can't see as acceptable is to ask the American people to go through two more of these things. John Nichols, read him at thenation.com. John, it's always great to have you on the show. It's a great pleasure to be with you, my friend. Remember the days of the hashtag free Melania? Remember how she swatted Trump's hand away in full view of the cameras at a public event? It was their arrival in Israel in 2017. Remember how Melania avoided public appearances with him for weeks after the news surfaced that his private attorney, Michael Cohn, had paid $130,000 in hush money to Stormy Daniels? That came out during the 2016 campaign, and the affair had taken place uh, after Melania got pregnant with Barron and we all found out about it. Remember how we saw her dressed all in white for his first State of the Union address, the white of the feminist movement, and how for the State of the Union speech, remember how she traveled from the White House to the Capitol building separately for Trump, something first ladies don't do? Free Melania, we said. We said she was a hostage in the White House. But now there's a book that says we were all wrong about that. For comment, we turn to Katha Pollitt, poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for the nation. Hi, Katha. Hi, John. Well, were you part of the free Melania movement like I was? I have to say, I, I, I find it very hard to condemn women. <laughs> uh, um, I, it took a lot to... <laughs> to pry me away from the idea that Melania was somehow, you know, trapped. Although 
with another part of me, I knew she wasn't. She could have left and sold her story to a tabloid for millions. So what what was your picture of Melania, you know, a couple of years ago? Oh, I thought, well, she married this guy and maybe he wasn't so bad then. And then he changed and she's got a child and maybe she's really depressed. I mean, being married to the wrong person can really do that to you. Um, she never looked happy. So I thought some version of all that, but I'm over it. <laughs> okay. There's this new book out that says that Free Melania was all wrong. First, let's start with the person who wrote it. Who is this person? Well, uh, this is Stephanie Winston Walcott, uh, who moves in high circles in New York, rich people society. Um, she worked for Vogue, and then she became a party planner for Vogue, where she was one of the people who organized the Met Museum annual costume gala, um, which is a big deal. Because of that, she, uh, well, she was Melania's friend, and because of her party planning expertise, she was hired to help set up the inaugural, all the inaugural events around, you know, around the inauguration. And um, she's, she's married to uh, David Walkoff, who is a real estate biggie. And uh, I saw their, this isn't in my piece, but I saw their apartment for sale online, $14 million. Terrible taste, terrible, terrible. You know, the world of, of Vogue and the Met Gala, this is mostly a democratic world, isn't it? Yes, it is. Um, Anna Wintour, who is the uh, editor of Vogue, she raised a ton of money for Hillary. She was a stone Hillary supporter. So when Stephanie wanted to get her contacts to help her organize all these inaugural events, they wouldn't. You know, all the big party designers and um, and they also had trouble, this is interesting, they also had a lot of trouble getting uh, really high-class um, performers at the inauguration and, and the events around it. Jennifer Hudson was supposed to, and she backed out. And so this person, Stephanie uh, Wolcott, claims to have been a really close friend of Melania, not just a staffer on the inauguration. What do you make, you think she's right about that? Well, I can't, I wasn't there. I wasn't at all their cozy little lunches. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but uh, she portrays, definitely portrays herself as a very good friend of Melania's. They had lunch every month at, um, let's see, at the Mark Hotel, Cipriani, or another fancy restaurant. And they were constantly emailing and texting. Texting, I guess, is only old-fashioned people like me still email. So they would text. And um, Melania, this is, I thought, kind of funny that, she was very fond of emojis. So these emails would be mostly, you know, smiley faces and little prayer hands and hearts and stuff like that. XOXO. So um, she portrays herself as a very close friend of Melania's, but she does say something rather interesting, which is that Melania never came to her house. It was always she going to Melania's house. So Melania has a kind of standoffish side that comes through in this, this book. And what is her picture of Melania before the, the free Melania days? Oh, well, before, before, when Melania was just, you know, a princess in a tower of gold toilets, um, <laughs> she, 
she liked Melania a lot. She thought Melania was sort of brave and courageous and funny. And um, she, she had, and I found this so weird. She has, says Stephanie, this magical calm that she exudes that Stephanie found very comforting. Um, and she says, uh, you know, all Donald had to do was look at Melania and he would immediately calm down. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. <laughs> I don't believe he's ever calmed down. And uh, how important was Wolcott in the Trump White House operation? Well, you know, this is a little hard to figure out because this book is written very much to justify as, as an act of self-justification. Um, so it's a little hard if you don't aren't familiar with this world to know what's true and what's not. It is the case that she never got full security clearance. She ended up using her own salary to hire people who should have been part of the picture and gotten their own salaries. So it's sort of hard to figure out. Eventually, she doesn't really have an office either. And so she's always schlepping things from one place to another. And uh, in the end, she gets very serious nerve damage that lands her in the hospital for days and days, and she has to have two operations from carrying all this stuff, and also from stress and anxiety. I understand there are some revelations here about Ivanka. Yes. Well, this was actually quite fascinating. So Ivanka, from the very beginning, according again, according to Stephanie Wolkoff, tried to push Melania, the actual first lady, out of the picture completely, both literally and figuratively. Uh, she was always poaching the staff that was supposed to was supposed to go to to Melania and to Stephanie. She would come and offer them, you know, jobs over her side of the aisle. And um, but the best thing, the best story is that um, Melania and Stephanie were very determined that Ivanka not appear in all the photographs where Ivanka was trying to push Mel, push Melania out of the way. So they had this thing called Operation Block Ivanka, where they actually, <laughs> they actually went to the place where the family would be seated at, one, at the inauguration or one of these events. And they figured out camera angles. They figured out where everybody would be sitting and how they could arrange for the photographs not to show Ivanka. <laughs> um, and, and, and Stephanie says, I know it was childish, but it was fun. If the work that Stephanie Wolkoff did was so stressful, it put her in the hospital, so demeaning, she had to hire people with her own out of her own money to work on her staff. How come she didn't quietly just leave? It certainly would have been possible. Well, again, I imagine the rewards of being associated with the White House were greater than all that shame and horror. But what actually happened is that there was an enormous scandal where uh, Stephanie was accused of stealing lots of money from the inaugural committee. And she claims that she did, this was, she claims that, you know, this was very far from true. It wasn't true at all. And it was uh, someone else, like Rick Gates, who was actually stealing the money. But I think they were probably all stealing money. I mean, that's sort of the way the Trump White House operates, isn't it? Um, Everybody's got their hand in the till. Um, but anyway, she claims that she was ultimately vindicated. But then what went wrong between her and Melania? 
oh, well, it's very sad because um, the only reason Stephanie says she stayed was out of loyalty, personal loyalty to her friend and their mutual devotion to children. And she was very keen on the Be Best initiative. <laughs> and she actually says, I told her that that sounded illiterate. <laughs> <laughs> but Melania was stuck on that ridiculous title for it. Um, but anyway, um, so she, she claims she had very altruistic patriotic motives for staying. But after the, the brouhaha about the money, Melania froze her out. No more emojis, no more little lunches. That was um, the end. At a certain point, Stephanie started taping things. This isn't in the book. It's in interviews that she gave around the book. And so she claims she has tapes to back up everything she says. The book sort of presents itself as a kind of tell-all, but you call it a tell-not-quite-all. What do you think is missing? Well, the horrors of the Trump administration are missing, for one thing. For example, Melanie, uh, Stephanie describes she helped Mel Melania write a little introduction for one of Trump's rallies. And the introduction is, you know, is very modest and nothing. And Stephanie actually goes to this rally. And then it says, you know, so Melania did her thing. And then Donald riled up the crowd, unquote, unquote. We never find out, oh, how did you feel about that? You know, when he's going on one of his racist rants. Uh, and talking about the lying media. These are her friends, you know, so what about that? The other, you know, and she also, she never, she doesn't get into the politics of the administration and she doesn't get into the corruption and all those weird Russians hanging around. You know, from her perspective, it's all about how wonderful it was that she was able to oversee the design of the invitations or the menus for the 50 state governor's dinner. <laughs> uh, and in case you were wondering, it, the design was that each of the state flowers is represented. I did think someone with more of a sense of humor could have written a hilarious book. For example, she describes how the, the florists, rival florists fighting. One person wanted, no, it should be all orange flowers. And the other one says, no, it should be peonies and roses. <laughs> I would have liked to have been a fly on that wall. I have one last sort of shred of the uh, free Melania idea. Does uh, Stephanie say anything about the campaign against cyberbullying, which was Melania's first initiative? That had to be a not-so-subtle uh, critique of her husband, who was, of course, the world's biggest cyberbully. Um, it could have been because he is the world's biggest cyberbully. Um and you would think that even Melania would have picked up on that. One last question has always puzzled me. The free Melania people were thrilled after Trump ordered those children put in cages at the border when she announced that she would visit them. That seemed like a humane move and another not-so-subtle criticism of him. But then she got on the plane wearing that jacket that said, I really don't care, do you? Does Stephanie Wolkoff explain what that was about? It means she really doesn't care. <laughs> <laughs> According to Wolkoff, this supposedly humanitarian visit was actually ended quite differently where um, she quotes Melania saying, 
The patrols told me the kids say, wow, I get a bed. I will have a cabinet for my clothes. It's more than they have in their own country where they sleep on the floor. So in other words, no empathy, no empathy. So in the end, what, what kind of book is this? What is her picture of Melania, if not a hostage in the White House? I think her picture of Melania starts out as, this is my fun friend. She's great. We're all rich together. But it ends up that she is self-centered, cold, hostile. And she says, quote, not a normal woman. Not a normal woman. And what do you make of that? I think that's true. She, I mean, she comes across as extremely, it just seems like she doesn't have, she, Melania, doesn't have the ordinary responses of an ordinary person. She's obsessed with her looks. She's obsessed with, um, she had a whole glam room made up that they, the Trump people tried to not let her have, but in the end she did a whole room for her to do, have her hair done and her makeup and everything like that. Um, and those seem like her major interests. Also, uh, I, I think we have to be grateful to Walcoff because she tells us the first lady, remember how she refused to move to Washington at first and she said, oh, it's Barron has to finish school. Well, maybe that was one reason, but another reason was she refused to move into the White House until the toilets and showers used by the Obamas had been replaced. That is disgusting. That is disgusting. And she, you know, she was in there with the birtherism. You know, she was supporting Donald on that. So we've been talking about the book Melania and Me by Stephanie Winston Wolcott. Katha wrote about it in her new column, readitatthenation.com. Katha, you have convinced me how wrong I was about free Melania. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Always happy to serve. <laughs> One more thing. We've got a special deal on subscriptions to The Nation just for our listeners. For more progressive journalism and to support our show, please subscribe online. You can save over $30 a year on a digital subscription to the magazine and get unlimited digital access for just $14.95. To subscribe, visit thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. That's thenation.com slash podcast subscribe, one word. Again, this deal is only available to podcast listeners. So if you're enjoying the show, please become a subscriber. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of the nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of the nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts.
mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.